we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikori, an executive director of the center. And before January leaves us, we wanted to do a show on a topic that's relevant, that's timely to this specific month, because January, for a number of years, has been National Human Trafficking Prevention Month. And so the obvious relevance of that issue to what's going on at the southern border, which is not the exclusive avenue of human trafficking into the United States, but probably the most important one. And in order to do that, we have back with us Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies here at the Center, who has actually made this trafficking issue one of her specializations. And the first thing I wanted Jessica to talk about, there's a difference between trafficking and smuggling. This is the way it's usually been put forth. Trafficking is where you are coerced, and smuggling is where the alien is actually part of the conspiracy, voluntarily paying. But there's also a lot of overlap, and they're not really as distinct as often people make them out to be. So, Jessica, if you could just give us an intro to what human trafficking is, what is this issue, and how is it different, and how is it related to voluntary smuggling across borders? Sure. Thanks, Mark. Human trafficking is the exploitation of someone by force, fraud, or coercion for either commercialized sex or forced labor or sometimes domestic servitude. And for the sake of law enforcement and prosecutions and some nuances of the law, yes, there there is a difference between smuggling and trafficking. Smuggling is a voluntary act of paying someone to bring you across the border. And trafficking is, as I said, the exploitation of someone by force or fraud or coercion. But there is a lot of overlap between the two crimes. And really, when we have a situation like we have now at the border, especially, often smuggling, paying someone to bring you across the border illegally, is really just the first step in something that ends up as human trafficking. And, Interesting. And while there is a lot of trafficking for commercialized sex, what I have found through my research is that forced labor trafficking is actually much more prevalent and is much more likely to occur when the offender, the trafficker, is not a citizen of the United States. So there's a real nexus to our immigration policies. So smuggling basically is the first step and then Trafficking is the consequence of the smuggling very often, is kind of what you're saying. Quite often, in the most common scenarios, yes. I mean, there are other times when our policies facilitate trafficking, 
there are a number of ways that what we have going on now at the border and the failure to enforce our immigration laws creates ideal conditions for trafficking. That, that is really the problem. That is why this is so important right now. And while numbers are hard to come by, my sources in law enforcement agencies are telling me that they see much more of it now than was the case just a couple of years ago. In fact, one sheriff I know in Texas told me that his agency used to have maybe one or two cases of human trafficking in their county every year. And last year, they had to deal with 77 cases of human trafficking. And this is a small rural county in Texas, but they're right on the smuggling corridor between the border and Houston. Interesting. So they're seeing much more of it. And I hear this also from people who work in local law enforcement agencies, especially some of the school resource officers that I've talked to have noticed a big uptick, a lot of social service agencies. And there are some reasons why we're seeing much more of it now. You know, part of the problem, though, is that it's, it's really tough to quantify. There are some NGOs that really do a good job of trying to quantify how big a problem this is and whether or not it's growing and so on. But only a few cases are actually prosecuted at the federal level. And a lot of times, if it's discovered, it's, it's prosecuted as something else like kidnapping or wage theft or something like that. So we hmm. really don't know how much it's happening. But the general sense is that it is happening more and more and also involving minors who are coming across the border and taking advantage of the U.S. policies on how minors are handled after they cross the border illegally. Interesting. And that's one of the most insidious aspects of this. So you alluded to the policies contributing to this. Specifically, we have policies that deal with so-called unaccompanied minors who are not from Mexico differently than those who are from Mexico whom we just return. And so you alluded to that part of our policy that contributes to the trafficking issue. But you also said more broadly that what's going on at the border now under Biden's policies create ideal conditions for trafficking. What about what we're seeing now at the border, our policies at the border, contributes to trafficking? Well, the first problem is that the Border Patrol is simply so overwhelmed with the sheer volume of illegal crossings right now hmm. that they really don't have the ability to do the normal kind of screenings that they would do on people that they apprehend to try to detect if it's a trafficking situation. Oh, I mean like pull them aside and question them sort of? see whether they're scared or nervous or whatever, that kind of thing? Right. To do more in-depth interviews with the migrants and the people who are bringing them to try to figure out if there's a, a smuggler or a trafficker in the group. Right. Those kinds of things are really, really hard for them to do right now. And of course, there are the hundreds of thousands of gotaways entering that they definitely don't have an opportunity to question. So that's the biggest problem is the, the sheer chaos there. Right. But the biggest problem, as far as our policies go right now, is the catch and release policies that are in place now, where illegal migrants, for the most part, are allowed to enter the United States for an indefinite period. So this is a huge incentive to 
pay a smuggler to bring you across illegally, knowing almost certainly that you're going to be allowed to stay in the United States for an indefinite period and not be subject to immigration enforcement, even if you don't comply with the terms of your release, like by checking in with ICE or you know, showing up for a court date. So that's a huge incentive that the smugglers are taking advantage of and that illegal migrants are taking advantage of. But what happens now is that most of them are allowed to make just a down payment on their smuggling bill, their smuggling fee, and they're expected to work off the rest of their debt to the smugglers, which turns out to be a deal with the devil that they will never be able to pay off this debt. But they find themselves essentially in labor bondage to employers that either the, the traffickers arrange for them or that they fall into out of, you know, not really understanding our system or being taken advantage of. And the fact that there's no interior enforcement to speak of means that there are very few opportunities for this kind of forced labor trafficking to be discovered and to be dealt with. That ICE isn't doing audits of, of hiring records or visiting work sites. And, and frankly, most labor departments aren't either. And so people are just getting away with this right and left. The most insidious form of this is when employers are hiring kids now, some of these minors who are coming across, sometimes even with their parents, and end up working in factories or on farms and restaurants, not going to school, as they were told, but being used as cheap labor in sometimes very dangerous and exploitative conditions. Reuters recently had some excellent reporting about dozens of kids that were found working for an auto parts manufacturing plant in Alabama. And apparently there are a number of these subsidiaries of Kia and Hyundai that are hiring miners from Central America who've crossed the border illegally. And, you know, even though these cases have been on the radar of DHS for a long time, they're not treating them like trafficking cases, particularly. They noticed for a while that there was a suspicious number of unaccompanied minors that were asking to be placed in one small town in Alabama. <laughs> and, you know, that should have been a big clue as to what was happening, but nothing really has been done about it that we know of other than a, a state investigation. So these kids really were brought from overseas to work here. In other words, it wasn't necessarily an example of, you know, voluntarily smuggling and then being caught up in trafficking. I mean, if they're asking to be placed there, then this is something that they knew about before they left Honduras or wherever it is they're from. That's really remarkable. Right. And that part might be voluntary. Right. Or maybe not if their parents made the arrangement. Right. But even if they agreed to be smuggled, they're still being held in either forced or coercive conditions right. very often that they feel that they can't escape from. It's indentured or servitude. Or in reality basically. can't escape from. Often the traffickers keep their passports. They don't let, you know, they have to live on a compound. They're not allowed to go out into the community. They're not allowed to go to school. And sometimes it turns out being much worse than they bargained for. But sometimes they don't realize how ex- 
truly exploitative these situations are. Like they, their attitude is, well, I signed up for this and I'm going to work for, you know, X number of years to pay it off, not realizing that it's just impossible for them to pay it off. But, you know, there are worse cases too, where it is truly almost like slavery conditions, you know, especially in the cases of domestic servitude. There was a case in Illinois where a smuggler convinced a mother in Guatemala that, you know, he could bring her daughter, who was 10 at the time, to the United States, and she would get to go to school here and have a much better life. And so the the mother paid the smuggling fee. And then when they got to the border, the Border Patrol knew the guy was not her father. He pretended to be her father, Hmm. one of these fake families that we hear about. And they busted him immediately because he'd been deported three times before. And and that almost didn't really matter because he knew he was going to get caught. But the point of the whole thing was that the girl had a phone number of someone that she was supposed to call who was supposedly a family member. Turns out it's the sister of the guy who you know, the trafficker who brought the girl over, Right. she goes to live with this family and is essentially a household slave. It wasn't discovered for years until she ends up in the hospital after a miscarriage. Wow. Because not only was she the household help, forced help, the teenage boys in the household were repeatedly raping her. Wow. You know, but this went under the radar for so many years, you know, the school didn't notice anything. She was also working at a factory. People came and went from the household under the the policies on unaccompanied minors. There, There's no home study. There's no background check. There's no monitoring of the child's well-being after they're released from the Border Patrol's custody and from HHS custody. So all of this happens right under our noses with many opportunities to prevent it. but it goes on. It's happening more and more frequently because really not much is ever discovered or prosecuted. I mean, we hear about cases, horrific cases from time to time, but, you know, really, again, we're setting ourselves up to see this kind of exploitation by the leniency at the border, but also by failing to try to enforce immigration laws within the interior. Yeah. So essentially, there would be instances of this no matter what we did because, you know, crime doesn't disappear. Right. But what we're doing, both because of the administration's laxity at the border and its almost total unwillingness to enforce immigration laws inside the country, is enabling more of this sort of thing that than would ever be possible if we actually were enforcing the laws. Right. Exactly. And the chaos also contributes to it. I mean, there are cases that I've uncovered that, for example, when the kids are put into group homes after they cross illegally or young women who make it across illegally and find themselves in San Antonio living in a shelter, a crowded shelter, and they're basically hanging out on the streets and they become vulnerable to traffickers. You know, guys will lurk around these shelters you know, offering to help the women or the girls, and then they end up in a trafficking situation. There are a a disturbing number of young girls, teens usually, who even after they're resettled here, they have a dysfunctional family life and they end up involved with a gang and then the gang takes advantage of them and traffics them. There was a huge case in Virginia of MS-13 members 
trafficking girls who were who arrived as unaccompanied minors and were living in shelters and they ran away and they you know it's a story you know you can you can easily imagine how it happens sure but it's just made that much easier when the government makes no effort to really monitor what happens to these kids in any meaningful way they they'll do one follow-up phone call after a couple months right but you can't tell if someone's being trafficked whether in a labor situation or domestic servitude by making a phone call i mean just it's just a pathetic effort and a significant share of those calls aren't even returned in other words right. uh, there was recent revelation that it was something like 20,000 people that called up and either they had the wrong number nobody picked up the phone and they apparently hhs kind of said oh well and you know moved on to the next thing we've seen some other instances where this turned out, I remember this first became an issue, I believe it was during the Obama administration. Wasn't there a young man who was uh, forced to work on an egg farm or something? Yes. That was an issue that really got in the news early. That was an organized trafficking incident. Right. And it was, if I recall, more than a dozen young boys who were trafficked here specifically to work on this egg farm in Ohio. Right. And that was what set off some pressure from Congress to have better placement policies for the unaccompanied minors that were implemented by the Trump administration, but were then abandoned by the Biden administration because their priority is to release these kids as quickly as possible, asking as few questions as possible, and then not, you know, not seeing a need to follow up on it. Because they view this as kind of a family reunification phenomenon rather than what it is, which is a criminal enterprise. Right, right. Now, some people who are lax on the immigration issue, even open borders people, might say that if we didn't have all this immigration enforcement, if, there, if anybody could just come in, you wouldn't have these kind of problems. In other words, that people you know, have to resort to the smugglers or traffickers because of our cruel and, and uh, relentless laws, putting aside the fact that this administration isn't doing much about enforcing existing law anyway, if we had basically open borders would this stuff continue? Would it go away? Or, I mean, are there reasons this would happen regardless of whether we had actual immigration? No, I, it, this or not? is not going to go away if we simply let everyone come in. Because, first of all, people living in faraway countries without much education or financial means are still going to have to pay someone to bring them to the border. Right. Or to help them apply for a legal visa program. And I think it's important for people to recognize that this forced labor trafficking happens far too often in our legal visa programs. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that a lot of the recruiting is done by a third party, labor contractor or staffing company, not by the actual employers. I see. So these are literally body shops that will recruit people who pay them and then they will sell their labor to the employer and the employer gets some deniability about what's going on 
I've seen a lot of cases like that not too far from where I live in South Carolina. We find trafficking situations on farms and in factories where people have have paid someone to get either an H-2A or an H-2B visa, and then they come in on a legal visa, and then when they get here, they are held in you know, slave-like conditions. They have to live on a compound. Again, they, you know, they have to work off some kind of passage, which is all prohibited under these visa programs, but it happens still because no one really enforces it. And, you know, no one's looking very hard and employers keep saying, well, we need these workers, but they are accomplices to this exploitation of people. And it's the the contractors who are making money off of this because they're being paid by the workers to bring them in and they're being paid by the employers to find the labor. So that's why we often see that these trafficking situations involve one of these contractors, a, a staffing company. Interesting. So, you know, it wouldn't be unfair to say that the H-2A visa, which is for agricultural workers and the H-2B visa, which is for unskilled but non-agricultural workers, that those visas are essentially human trafficking visas. I mean, there are people who use them without being trafficked. There's no question. It's not that everyone who enters the United States on an H-2A or H-2B visa is by definition being trafficked, but those visas do facilitate human trafficking. Absolutely. The worker is a pure commodity that people are making money off of. Right. And, you know, maybe that kind of thing could be avoided or reduced with more muscular oversight. But frankly, there isn't much stomach for oversight. And the H-2A visa in particular, the farm worker visa, is uncapped. And so it's been growing by leaps and bounds. So there's really no way you could follow up and make sure that employers are complying with the rules because there's various rules about housing and transportation and whatever that has to be provided. You know, when the number of H-2A visas goes from, I I don't even know what the number is off the top of my head now, but, you know, goes from 50,000 to 250,000. Right. It is about 300,000 now. (laughs) Yeah. In, In a period of like a decade, I mean, it exploded quite rapidly. There's no way the government can regulators can keep up with that. And so it's, it's almost asking for instances of exploitation and human trafficking. Right. But I, I think there are some things that the government could do to at least reduce it. I mean, again, this is one of these crimes that's as old as time, but right. I really believe that Congress should bar third-party recruiters or contractors or staffing companies from being able to sponsor workers for visas and then farm them Mm. out to employers. You know, I think that if there were more liability for the employer and if we removed these third parties who are the ones, again, making money off of this in both directions, if we remove them from the equation and the employers were held responsible, I think that a lot of this could be addressed. Interesting. Yeah, but of course... Part of the point of using these visas is to create kind of deniability, like you said. In other words, it's like, well, these people don't work for me. They work for that company over there. Go ask them. And that's a fly-by-night company that doesn't have any assets. And so if you're a farmer, you've basically, you're paying the labor contractor to assume the risk of 
either employing illegal immigrants, which is different from, well, potentially what we're talking about here, but even the risk of not complying with the various uh, requirements of legal visa programs. Right. And it's usually the, the staffing company or recruiter that's the one brandishing a gun when they go to visit the housing site. They're the ones that are collecting the passports of the workers and telling them that they can't leave and right. and, and all that. And sometimes they get prosecuted, but often they don't. And, you know, because understandably the workers are afraid, but cutting them out of the picture would clean up these legal work visa programs for sure. Interesting. So what other policy changes in either legal visa programs, but also in immigration enforcement would help in combating human trafficking? Well, the fundamental change that needs to be made is to end the catch and release at the border incentivizing coming here illegally so that you'll get released and have the opportunity to work illegally in the United States. I mean, that just doesn't exist if we're securing the border. So that puts a lot of the traffickers out of business and people are are not going to put themselves in situations that make them vulnerable to trafficking. With respect to the minors, there needs to be more of an effort to determine the relationships of the people who are coming forward as sponsors, whether they're claiming to be family members or family friends or offering themselves as, you know, a foster home or something like that. Right. The standards for placing these kids after they've been apprehended at the border is nothing compared to what a legitimate foster care placement situation would be under most state regulations, you know, with background checks and financial assessments and and home studies and well-being checks periodically after placement. None of that happens except in very rare instances. And that's the best way to get at the problem of, of the trafficking in minors. And I helped put together a conference on combating human trafficking in Houston last year and last September. And I have to tell you that the school resource officers, their hair was on fire. They, they just could not understand where these kids came from, how they were released into the United States, what they could do about the ones that were simply you know, taking off not staying with their sponsors, getting involved in gangs, and in some cases, girls being trafficked right under their noses. They had no idea who to talk to and what to do about it. And, and some states have better efforts than others, but it's, it's a tricky problem when people don't you know, realize what's going on in terms of the fact that people are being allowed to come in illegally and released without much information on who they are, where they're going, and local authorities can't do anything about it and are not even given any information about what's happening. Of course, if that were to happen without a change in the law, that would mean those minors would stay in shelters run by Health and Human Services longer, and the political pressure is to get them out of those shelters. Is that correct? It is, but it. I would argue that if your first priority is the well-being of this child, you're better off either returning them to their family in their home country quickly or holding them until you can be absolutely certain and putting the resources into making sure that the placements you make are safe for the kid and that you know that the kid is not 
being put into a forced labor situation. Right. There's a visa, isn't there, that gives a green card to people who've been trafficked? I assume they, if they cooperate with authorities, something like that. What's the story with that? Yes, there, there is a visa available for victims of trafficking. It's called the T visa, T for trafficking. And it, it is a form of protection for the victims that really does help them feel more comfortable cooperating with authorities in order to prosecute the traffickers. So it is helpful. It's useful for prosecutions and it's, it's useful to protect the victims. And we need to have this visa. Unfortunately, when we start to have conversations about trafficking with advocacy groups, you know, many advocacy groups that are involved in serving the victims or survivors of human trafficking and raising awareness of the problem, when it comes down to discussing policy changes and what to do about trafficking and how to disrupt it, generally, these NGOs are content to simply offer more T-visas rather than talk about the infrastructure of trafficking and the way our immigration policies play such a big role in facilitating trafficking. They seem to be fine with the, with the lax border policies that make trafficking easy. They think the answer is simply to hand out more visas to people who have been trafficked. Yeah, so it's basically using it as a, a pretext for amnestying an ever-increasing number of people, really. Right. They would be happy if we expanded the definition of trafficking and lower the standards of proof for establishing that you qualify for it and so on, you know, they right. see those as, as an answer to the trafficking problem when, you know, while the T-visas are important, that's not the answer. So it's rather than address the actual problem. In other words, the T-visas deal with the consequences of trafficking, but it's the actual causes of it lying within our immigration policies that actually need to reduce trafficking, not try to clean it up right. once it's happened. It's like taking an aspirin for a brain tumor. You know, it may make right. some of the pain go away in the short term, but doesn't address the problem. So what now? What's your plan for this? Is there another conference? This was in Houston. Is there another conference being contemplated? Are you writing something on it? What, uh, what can we expect? Yes, we're, we're going to do uh, another conference in July this year to try to pick up on some of the ideas that were generated at the last one, a lot of which centered around trying to develop more sources of information about how frequently this is happening, in what form, who are the offenders, and how is this happening exactly? You know, what are the kind of typical pathways that are involved? Hmm. And, and how to address it. So, you know, a lot of it really is getting basic information. I've been talking with some state attorneys general's offices about developing some better way to report on what is going on. A lot of states have anti-trafficking laws, but we're finding out that they're not particularly effective because local officers don't have a great understanding of what they're seeing and how to coordinate with state and with federal agencies on prosecuting these individuals under, you know, some of the tougher federal statutes, for example, 
and just dealing with it as a trafficking situation and peeling back the layers of the onion on the traffickers to figure out, you know, what parts of the immigration system are they exploiting and and how is that working? In other words, kind of diagnosing what the problem is or how the immigration system is being exploited by these folks, hopefully to suggest policy changes to make that less uh, less likely. Yes, and and I think it's really important for the state and local law enforcement agencies to be involved in coordination with the feds because they're the ones that are going to see it first. It's usually neighbors or people who are friends with the victims who end up reporting this. Right. Interesting. Okay. uh, Thank you, Jessica. That was Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies here at the Center for Immigration Studies, talking about the issue of human trafficking because this month, January, is National Human Trafficking Prevention Month. And although not every instance of human trafficking relates to immigration, immigration and immigration policy and our lax border and our lax guest worker programs are really, I think it's fair to say, the main vector of human trafficking in the United States. And immigration policy changes have to be made if we're ever going to reduce this problem and bring it under control. So thank you for coming in and maybe uh, later in the year after this uh, next conference you're planning in the summer, we'll have you in again to talk about this. Thanks. Thank you. And finally, last week, Friday night, after close of business, the government released the border apprehension numbers for December, which were the highest in history for any month anywhere. It was more than a quarter million total so-called encounters at the border. Of those, 220-something thousand were border patrol apprehensions. Again, the largest number ever. And the January numbers are likely to be somewhat lower because the president's recently announced policies with regard to people from certain countries, Cuba, Venezuela, et cetera, that some will be turned back, probably have reduced the flow. There's just no question about it. But reducing the illegal flow is one thing. Will these policies actually reduce the number of people coming across the border who have no authorization to be here? And the answer is probably not. In fact, if anything, it may increase them because what the administration is doing is trying to funnel those people who would otherwise have snuck across the border through ostensibly legal programs using something called parole to, quote, legally, unquote, let them into the United States. And I put legally in scare quotes because this use of parole, immigration parole, is itself a violation of the law. So instead of the illegal immigrants sneaking across the border to break the law, the federal government itself is breaking the law in order to bring these people in through the legal ports of entry. And so this really does reflect something that a columnist had written recently, that one side in this debate wants to stop the flow of people across the border. The other side, the administration, wants to accommodate the flow. In other words, they don't want to deter people or stop people. They want to, in any way possible, bring them in more expeditiously, efficiently, and comfortably, but, and this is the important point, keep them out 
of the arrest statistics, of the uh, apprehension statistics that are reported every month and that were dropped Friday night in what's called a Friday night news dump. Our website, we have a couple pieces on that. Our website is cis.org. And also, I noticed in one of the reviews on Apple Podcasts, it was a suggestion that we take questions from listeners and answer them. And I'd be happy to do so. I think it's a good idea. Obviously, legitimate questions, not, uh, you know, why do you have such a dulcet tones on the radio, but actual substantive questions about immigration. If you have any that are relevant to our discussions here, email center at cis.org. That's center at cis.org. Just put podcast in the subject line. And if we get questions that are substantive and relevant to the kind of things we talk about here, I'll be happy to answer them if I can or find someone who can answer them. Until next week, thank you for tuning in. I want to thank our producer, Brian Griffith. I don't know if I've thanked him before, but this show would not exist without his indefatigable efforts. And hopefully those efforts will continue and we will have an episode next month as well. Hope you tune in then.